Well, good morning, friends. How many of you are excited to be at church this morning? Amen. Yes, indeed. Well, we are on week two of our At the Movies and then our teaching series, and next week we'll wrap it up with uh, the movie I Can Only Imagine. And if you haven't seen that, I don't even know if it's, I don't even know if you can rent it right now. Yes, you can. You're going to want to watch it. A powerful story about the power of forgiveness. It's an awesome, awesome movie. But uh, before we jump in and take a look at The Greatest Showman, which you guys did awesome. It was so awesome to sit up front and just hear all the musical instruments and hope you had fun with that. But I want to really invite you in two weeks, in two weeks from today, Joe Sangle is coming from South Carolina. We've invested money into him to come and to invest into you guys. And he's coming from South Carolina to talk about finances with us. And in, next, in two Sundays, it's going to be 9 and 10.30. I know it says 10.45, but at 9 and 10.30 in our service, he's kicking off our brand new series together titled Changemaker. And that will be a three-parter, and he gets the privilege to kick it off. And I'm telling you, he's from South Carolina, so he's got that good southern accent going on. And so he's just like, you know when you hear a guy or a woman from Ireland, you're like, man, what a great accent. He's got a great accent. And you're, he's so captivating, and he brings passion about finances and God's blessing, and we're going to be blessed by him. So come on that Sunday morning as he kicks off Changemaker, and then we have our, he's coming back Sunday night from 5 to 7 o'clock to help us with our own personal finances and help us get that in order. And for some of us, we, we may think we've got it all together financially, but I'm in, encouraging you to come and learn from him. And for some of us, we, our, our finances are just upside down. And we don't know how to even do a budget or just anything. Come learn from him. And young families, let me speak to you because I, I'm there. I am one. Bring your kids. We purposely have things in the back for your kids to do, and we're going to provide food for them to free you to come and hear from him. All right? Does that sound good? And I know for some of us, you're like, yeah, listen, Sunday at 5 o'clock, there's nothing good on TV. The Lions are done, played with, and probably lost by now, all right? <laughs> the Bears are going to win that division. I'm just saying. They're going to win that division. So, <laughs> so come and learn from him, right? Come and learn from him. It's going to be phenomenal. I was on the phone with him this past week, and he's like, Ryan, what's a win? Tell me what a win would be for you on that Sunday night financial learning experience. And I, and I want to say, you know what, Joe, I, I hope we, listen, you can invite your friends to this. We're, this is open to the public. Invite your friends. Get them here. I said, I hope deep down, I didn't tell them this, but I hope deep down that we, we, it looks like this for him Sunday night. I really do. Uh, because let's be honest, sometimes money masters us and we don't master money. And so... I said, uh, I played it conservative, right? Because I, I want to boost him up as well. Because again, we're flying him from South Carolina for you. I said, uh, 100 people. If we get 100 people, uh, that's a win. And deep down, I know it, deep down inside, uh, we need 250, 300 people here. Uh, so, so seriously, you need to grab that handout that you walked in here this morning. Grab it now. Tear that connection card off at the bottom and circle F. Because we need to know how much food to get for you all as well. All right, and if your kid is coming with you, or your kids, your nieces and nephews, or your grandkids, write how many kids, like three kids, down by F, because we got to get food for your kids as well. All right, so I, let, let's pack this house for him. He's coming 
to be a blessing to us, but we want to be a blessing to him as well, make him feel like his time was worth it. All right? Does that sound good? <laughs> Finances, really? <laughs> We're going to learn. We're going to grow. Let's, let's, let's allow God to help us master our money and not be mastered by money. That, that's for all of us. That's the truth, all right? So, hey, I'm excited. I'm excited for my wife and I and our family to sit through him, and I, it's going to be great. I get, to, I get access to him all weekend long. I'm, I'm a little more blessed than that in that way, in that regards. I get to spend Saturday with this guy. I'm going to pick his brain worth everything, all right? Because he's coming to be a blessing, and let's go bless him, all right? Hey, let's jump in to week two. Thanks for coming to church. I tell you, I stayed up. I, I had tickets to the game last night, and I chose not to go, so I had energy to be here this morning. Do you know how much that hurts my heart? But it's good. And Michigan still kicked the... Yeah. Hey, side note, I saw a funny sign because college game day was at, in Ann Arbor, uh, the second greatest place to heaven, and they were at college, and someone had a sign, and they're the Wisconsin Badgers. No, no, they, they played Michigan, you know, Michigan Wolverines and stuff, yeah? All right, some of you are like, I don't even care, shut up. All right, but there's this sign that said, Badgers are fat skunks. And I was busting up. I was like, that is so true. It just is a fat skunk. That's it. it was awesome. And Wisconsin put a big skunk in last night, and my Wolverines beat them. And now my Wolverines got you Spartans next week. You better fear the Wolverine. I'm just telling you right now, we're playing good the ball right now. All right? Amen to that, Wolverine fans. All right. Now I've divided the room up. All right? Hey, told you. Five cups of coffee this morning. <laughs> I'm ready. All right, here we go. At the movies, The Greatest Showman is a phenomenal movie based on the life of P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum was the inventor, the creator of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, where he took people with unique giftings and put them together and created this thing called the circus. There was nothing like this at the time. And if you think about a circus, how many of you went as a kid? You went to a circus. Yeah, some of you, a lot of you did. And I remember I rode my first elephant at a circus. Those things are hairier than you think. Hairy and hard, right? And you just get on that and you're like, man, this thing is weird. And, but the trapeze artists that are flying up in the air and people that can tame lions and just uh, the jugglers and the people that, uh, you can pack eight clowns in a little car too. I mean, it's so fun to see that. And and the fire-breathing people, it's just awesome. But it's a unique gifting of people that are just all sorts of unique talents that we didn't ever normally get to see. And now, unfortunately, some of the, the major circus doesn't even exist anymore that maybe some of us got to grow up with and our kids in that generation that's growing up now won't, won't get to see. But P.T. Barnum, he was the creator of it. He saw something in people when people rejected them. But he saw something unique in them. I love as a saying as a kid, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you said it, is I'm just going to run away and join the what? Circus, because there was a reality within the circus is you were accepted as family. And that's what P.T. Barnum created. P.T. Barnum, in fact, was born in Bethel, Connecticut in 1820. This is a real picture of him, and in the movie it's played by Hugh Jackman. And in the midst of it, he was realizing what society saw as rejects, he saw uniqueness and beauty within them. And created this thing called the circus, or what you just saw is the idea of show business. 
And in fact, he, he began to travel around the world to find those unique individuals that the society shunned. And the first was a guy by the name of Tom Thumb, which was his performing name. And his real name is Charles Stratton, and obviously was vertically challenged. And he was the major performer in the circus for P.T. Barnum. He also found a woman by the name of Annie Jones. Annie Jones was the bearded lady. She had a genetic disorder that caused her to grow facial, um, a facial hair. And in the midst of that, the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, saw what P.T. Barnum was doing and invited her to spend an entire day in the castle in England just to hear from her and understand where she was shunned and how to be accepted. And that's what P.T. Barnum did. And he also went to Thailand and, and found these two unique individuals, that's Chang and Eng. They were Siamese tri- twins, conjoined twins, and the very unique ability these two brothers had. And in fact, here's some just odd things about them. They married sisters. And then they fathered 21 kids between the two of them. I don't even know how that would work or what that looked like at night. I don't know. That's just weird. I'll let them deal with that, all right? That's just, I, mm, all right? But the idea is that they, they were odd. In fact, during the 18th century, these people wouldn't even dare to go outside their home because they would be shunned and rejected, and people would yell, monsters, monsters, and you would hide your kids away from them. And don't get me wrong, P.T. Barnum wanted to make his buck. And we would raise an issue today saying, don't parade around people that have deformities and oddities about them. But what P.T. Barnum did do to people who never felt like they belonged anywhere is he created a family to say, you have a place here. It's safe. And he went around and found uniqueness and beauty when the world saw ugly, deformed things. And in fact, it wasn't much different than when P.T. Barnum was growing up in the 18th century that we find in the Older Testament when people wanted to worship God. In the book of Leviticus, it had some like laws and rules about worshiping God. And look what the book of Leviticus has to say for us. It says, no one who has a defect qualities, whether he's blind, lame, disfigured, disformed, or has a broken foot or arm, or is hunchbacked or dwarfed, or has a defective eye, so if you've got glasses, you can't do this, or skin sores or scabbed or damaged testicles. That's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. I don't know what to do with it, other than if you're at a kid's soccer game, you know, and you get the ball comes in, you get hit there and go, oh, and you just say, hey, can't see you at church tomorrow, I guess. I mean, what do you do with that? It's there. But then he goes on and says, Oh, wow. The Bible's awesome. No descendant of Aaron who has a what? Defect may approach the altar to present special gifts to the Lord. So it's just that idea in P.T. Barnum's life in the 18th century, same in the Older Testament. If you had a defect, listen, you couldn't go to God. You couldn't present. You, you, you were shunned. You were shamed. And, and in, in Jesus' time, if someone had leprosy, you would cry out, leprosy, leper, those that they've got, get away, get away, unclean, unclean. And P.T. Barnum, though, saw something. Yeah, the world may yell that at you, but I see uniqueness and beauty. And he met people at the heart level. 
And then enter Jesus, who absolutely radicalized this idea of people who are ostracized and are shunned in his culture. So here's what I need on stage. I just need, you're just going to look pretty, okay? I'm not going to do anything to you, but I need five people just to come right here real quick. Okay, just come on stage. I don't care who. I'm going to need five, then one, then two, then four. So just, there's going to be a lot of just right here. Now, if you were with me five years ago, I briefly talked about it, but I'd have to rehash this to understand it. So give me five. One, two, three, four, five. And you all, let's do this. Here we go. You all make sure you get in there nice and, and good. Now, it's under Jesus' world in the first century in order to understand some things. There were certain people groups in Jesus' time, and the first group are fishermen. So here we have, representing our fishermen and ladies and fisher kids, okay? This group was your hard-working, blue-nosed, collared people. They worked all night long to catch fish. They battled the waves and the weather of the Sea of Galilee. And they fished all night long because you wanted to get your fresh fish to the market in the morning. And you wanted to... You wanted to throw your nets out. There's different types of fishing during the time of Jesus, but you'd throw your net out, and the fish would be up high at night because down low it's too cold for them. So they come up warmer, where the, up, up to the surface where there's warmer water. They would throw their nets out there, and then immediately as soon as sunrise happens, they would take their fish and go to the city of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, and Magdala was the salting center of the ancient world, and you'd have your fish salted there, and then you can put your fresh fish out in the market when the market starts. All day long, blue-nosed, hard-working crew, the fishermen were. All right, now give me one guest, one person over here, please. There's another group of people, that's yours there, there's another group of people known as the tax collectors. These are the people you hated. Don't steal that money, that's church money by the way. <laughs> Sticky fingers. All right, tax collectors, you despise these people, you hated them. Now on the count of three, let's just boo him because he's too prideful right now. One, two, three. All right, good. Uh, tax collectors were known as traitors in the first century world. A lot of them were good Jews who just traded their souls to the Roman government. Rome ruled Italy to India at the time of Jesus. I mean, they had everything under their control. And what Rome needed to do is Rome needed to collect taxes. And so there were two types of taxes that these tax collectors, there we go, these tax collectors would collect. Number one would be a direct tax. The direct tax is kind of what you and I pay today. We just pay a federal tax, right? On our income, we just pay it. There's nothing we can do about it because the IRS says so. We just pay it. That's what happens. So he would collect the direct tax, and that tax would go straight to the Roman Empire. But he also collected what's known as an indirect tax. Think Indiana Toll Road. The things that you get on that 8090, you start going down the Indiana Toll Road, and then you hit, and then you go into Chicago, and you got all those tolls. That's what he was collecting as well. So if you had to travel, he would indirect tax you because he wants to make money as well. And he would nail you up indirect tax. And you didn't like these people because these people were supposed to be good Jews with you all. But they traded their soul, and now they're working for the Roman government. 
And you don't like the Roman government because they've got their thumb of, on, of oppression on top of you right now. And that's what they did. Now, these guys, there's several, but again, this tax collector, they were literally, think of the most despised person you could think of today, and that was them and during the time of Jesus. And what they did is a thing called tax farming. They went around, and you would go around and bid. So if this gentleman, this tax collector, wanted the city of Sturgis, he would bid it out to Rome, and Rome would say, how much do you want Sturgis for? And Frank, the tax collector, would say $1,000, and Rome says, deal. And guess what? Now, Frank, the tax collector's out $1,000. So guess what he's going to do to you? He's going to tax you even more because he wants to recoup his $1,000. And not only that, he's got to make a living as well. So he's taxing you out of the wazoo right now. That's why you despise these people. They rip you off. But there's a third group of people during the time of Jesus, and it's known as the zealots. Let me hear you say zealots. zealots. So give me two people over here, please. Two people. And... Um, I'm giving you daggers, <clears throat> fake daggers. These are ninja daggers or something. Here, Emma, you, you here. And then you, sir, right here. Thank you. You can stand by. Zealots. Who were the zealots? The zealots were fanatical religious people. They believed in two greatest commandments. Number one, that you love God with everything you have deep down. That's exactly, you love God. And number two, you never commit idolatry. Ever. And they truly believed that they would usher in God's kingdom through fear and violence. But there was a subgroup of the zealots known as the Sakari. Let me hear you say Sakari. Now, the Sakari, that word literally means curved dagger. Now, Emma, can I see your dagger for a moment? They would be small curved daggers that they could fit up inside their cloak. So they could walk in the marketplace. You have no idea he has a curved dagger, or she, and whip it out and slice their throat, graphic, right? Put it back in and walk. And he's dead, he's bleeding out, and no one knows who did it. So they had these little curved daggers that they would go and assassinate. Now here's one reason why the zealots hated the tax collectors. Remember their second thing that they're committed to is no idolatry. Well, the tax collectors are collecting taxes, which are paid through coins. The coins at the time of Jesus read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, it's Tiberius Caesar, son of God. That's idolatry to the zealots. So they hated the tax collectors. And get this, at the time of Jesus, you have two zealots that hated the tax collectors because they sold their soul to the Roman government. Don't commit idolatry. That's exactly what you do when you work for the Roman government. So they don't like you, and the zealots don't like the fishermen because the fishermen are just giving in to what the tax collector says. They've been working their tail end off all night, only catch 10 fish, and this guy says, I want seven of your fish, and they only get to get three now. But the zealots are saying, don't give in to Rome. Don't do it. That's idolatry. And guess what? The tax collectors, they don't like the zealots. Because more than likely, they've lost a parent or a family member to them. Because they're out with guerrilla warfare trying to crush the Roman government and that whole theology that they bring. And on top of that, the fishermen definitely despise them. They're the tax collectors are ripping them off. 
Do you see the dysfunction right here? Now give me four more people to stand right over here, please. You get to be on the stairs right here, just four. I don't have anything for you, you just, sorry. You just get to stand and look pretty. There you go, perfect. One, two, three, four, awesome. Awesome. Now, these four, think of Jesus' group of people. These four, Jesus did like three and a half years with 12 disciples. We have no idea what these people did. So just look pretty, and uh, there you go, pose. <laughs> we have no idea. But let's start to unpack, and you guys stay up for about three more minutes. We're going to unpack some of who Jesus' disciples are really quick and understand that Jesus didn't just pick 12 good people to do life with. Check this out in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. It reads this. These are the names of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, which is an awesome name, and his brother John. Now, we have four names there who are the disciples of Jesus. My question is, well, what do they do? Why do we just have these four names? Well, Back a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 4, we get exactly who these guys are. Check this out. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were what? Fishermen. Peter and Andrew. Welcome to the fishermen group. Well, what about those other four? What about those brothers of Zebedee, James and John? What about them? Well, this continues in Matthew, and check what, what Jesus does next. He says, going from there, after he met Andrew and Peter and Andrew on the, boat, on the Sea of Galilee, he says, going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their what? Nets. They're fishermen, too. So James and John, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, part of Jesus' group, fishermen. Well, that leaves one. Who's that person? Well, we safely conclude that that more than likely is Philip, and here's why. In John chapter 1, we get an inkling of where Philip's from, and this is what John chapter 1 says. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, who are over there, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida, bet meaning the house of Sadia fish. This was the major fishing village of Jesus' time. It's right here. So if you grew up in Bethsaida, Guess what you did? You fished. So we can safely conclude you have uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John and Philip as the fishermen in the life of Jesus. Now, let's go back into Matthew chapter 10 and let's figure out who the rest of these guys are. It says, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the what? Hey, what's up, Matthew? How you doing? Thief. All right. So we know we got Matthew here. And, it's, and it continues in verse 4, Simon the what? We know one is a, all is a zealot who's all about guerrilla warfare. If you know zealots here in the first century, so one of these two is Simon. And then you have Judas Iscariot. Who's Judas? Yeah, no one wants to be him ever. <laughs> Who betrayed him. Now, what do we know about Judas? Judas. Judas. This is not his last name, is Iscariot. It actually reads in the Greek, esh kariot. Esh meaning um, man of, kariot is the city. We knew the city of kariot was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And what do we know about kariot? It was the headquarters of the zealots. 
So we believe it's safe to assume that these two is Simon the Zealot and more than likely Judas who grew up in the headquarters of the Zealots is probably a Zealot as well. You got two guys there and many would believe with Judas, remember how they want to usher in God's kingdom was through fear and violence. That possibly why Judas betrayed Jesus is because he was trying to cause an uprising during the time of Jesus to say, Jesus, if you're the son of God, rise up. Do something. I'm going to put Jesus in a situation that maybe cause him to rise up and, and start bringing in God's kingdom with violence. And Jesus is like, no, I, I got to go to this cross thing. And it messed with Judas's mind. But a lot of people, some biblical scholars believe maybe that's why exactly it was Judas that betrayed. It would be a zealot that betrayed Jesus. Interesting. But again, we don't know what those four, the rest of the disciples, we don't know what they did. We may have one inclination that one of them was from the city of Cana. Now, if you remember Jesus's, if, you're, if you know the Bible, Jesus' first miracle happened at a wedding, and he did the best wine. Well, the wine-making center during Jesus' time is from Cana. Perhaps one of those is a winemaker. We don't know that, but maybe. But can I say, welcome to Jesus' misfits. Completely random people who despised each other, who had different stories, who believed differently politically, spiritually, socially, economically, all through the spectrum. Jesus' 12 disciples weren't good old boys. Oh, no. They were hardworking fishermen. They were the tax collector that you despised. They were zealots who were all about guerrilla warfare and possibly killed people for God's kingdom. And then four cute little kids. We don't know what they did. All right? Hey, real quick, can we just give them a hand real quick for coming up on stage? Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. As P.T. Barnum saw uniqueness in people, man, so did Jesus. I love the fact that where Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he didn't go to the palace. He didn't go to the temple. Where'd he go? To the fishing docks first. He went to the margins. He went to those that were marginalized. That's where he chose. His 12 people were from the outside and began to say, I can know, I know society may shun you, society may reject you, but I'm going to tell you I see something in you and I'm going to radically change you. I'm going to get down on a deeper level and change your heart. And boy, did he ever 2,000 years ago. And what was so revolutionary about Jesus' message was in the Older Testament, you had, a God, you had God that says, I, don't come to me with your defects. But what Jesus did was change people from the inside out. And he said, you know what? You that have leprosy, Jesus wasn't affected by them, but he allowed his holiness to affect them. And why else would the poor and the blind, and the lame, and the prostitutes, and the sick, and the disease, they were drawn to the heart of Jesus. Is that not a picture of the church today? Oh, I need a better amen than that, my goodness. That should be our heartbeat. Is that's who Jesus went after. Were those that society looked at you and said, you're nothing to us. You're worthless to us. We despise you. We hate you. And Jesus said, good, let them come to me because I'm going to love them well and I'm going to show them who their heavenly father is. 
In fact, they didn't even like Jesus. The religious people tried to trick Jesus. And they asked him this question in Matthew chapter 22. They asked this question to Jesus. One of them, an expert in the law, referring to the law at the time, which was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Older Testament is the law. On top of that, there are 613 laws to abide by in order the Pharisees were like, hey, just don't sin, don't sin. We've got, the, we got these books, we've got these Ten Commandments. Let me add more to make sure we, that we're not sinning. And an expert in that tested him with this question. They want to corner Jesus. They want to put Jesus in a box because they can't figure out what he's doing. And they don't like it. Listen, you can never put Jesus in a box. He will always exceed your expectations. You'll put him in a box and you realize, wow, he's bigger than that. And you'll put him in a bigger box and say, wow, he's bigger than that. And you'll put him in even a bigger box. You cannot, you can't grasp how awesome he is. Don't put him in a box. And here's how Jesus responds. You want to trick me? You want to question? Okay, here's, here's the question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I mean, you're claiming to be the son of God. You're claiming who you are. We see your miracles and we see the crowds go after your teaching. But we want to know, we want to trick you and we want to corner you because we can't figure you out. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, okay. What's this first word? Love. Love. You want to corner me, I want to tell you what the greatest. I'll answer your question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Do you want to corner me? Let me just tell you to love God. Oh, this is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus said, and Jesus said I'm not done. And the what? The second is this. It's like this. Here it is. And I imagine the Pharisees are like, hey, we only asked you one question, Jesus. We asked you what the greatest. They're like, why are you going on to a second? Because ah, you can't have one without the other. You're to love God with everything and zip it. You, you be quiet because I'm not done. I'm going to tell you the second one. Because they go hand in hand. Can we read this sentence out together? Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to corner me? You want to try to trip me up because you can't fit me in your box? I'm going to tell you, you're going to love God and love others. Love God and love others. That's the greatest. And Jesus ends it by saying this, all the law, everything you've studied in school, everything that the first five books that you memorized as a kid by the age of 12, everything that's there, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the great prophets that God spoke to, get this, hey, hang on these two commandments. Love God, love others, period, I'm done. And people did not know what to do. They didn't know. And they said, who is this Jesus? And here we can get, I know I got to love people. But we will never love people well until we only see ourselves and others will we be able to love them well. Man, that's so hard. That child that has that disability, God, I just don't get them, and I'm trying to, God, just give me grace in this moment, and I cannot, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this. What is it like to put ourselves in their shoes? And we see that child with a disability, but I'm telling you, God sees them with purpose. God sees them with his image in him. 
that parent that has dementia or Alzheimer's. And that's just, you're just struggling. It's just, listen, you may think that they're, they're, that they're just losing their mind and you see their brokenness. I'm telling you, God still sees them as their child. For that person that's addicted to something and all you have to say is, you know what? They're just addicted to things. That's the way they'll always be their whole life. Hold on, hold on. What would it look like to put yourself into their shoes and say, oh, I realize there's something in their heart going on. And I realize now that's why they're turning to that addiction. And now we can love them better because we got into their shoes. How about Ryan? I can't love my spouse or my coworker or my boss at this show. I can't because they drive me crazy. Hold on. Maybe there's something in their life right now that's causing them to react the way they are. What would it look like to love them well and say, you know what, let me see, let me jump into your shoes and see what's, what's going on. I'm telling you, friends, this was wrecking me all week. I don't do this well all the time. But as we say around here, live like Jesus, share his love. This is gonna, what's going to cost us to live like him is to love people well. And when society sees brokenness, God sees glory and image in them. So how do we do it? Where do we begin? How, do we, how am I going to love them well and jump in their shoes? Here's what I want to say. Three, three quick things for us this morning. Is this start at the margins. Start at the what? You got to start at the margins and on the fringes. Again, where did Jesus start? Not the palace, not the temple, but the fishing docks. Where the world has already ostracized people. Jesus started there. You got to start in the margins where people are shunned in culture. And then the second thing is, when you start there where Jesus started on the fishing docks and on the outside, he never built his church with the perfect, he built it with the imperfect. He started from the outside and worked in. You got to start at the margins. The second is this, embrace the overlooked. Embrace the what? Listen, there's nothing more powerful than looking at someone that's on the fringe and on the margin that maybe perhaps you don't like, maybe perhaps drives you bonkers. That kid that you teach in school, man, they smell. Man, he drives me nuts. Man, the girl can't sit down. But this is what would it look like if you started with them? Just begin to embrace them. Begin to jump in their shoes and begin to just work that relationship. There's a kid that I've coached uh, football now. There's a group of us here at the church that help coach eighth grade football at the middle school. And uh, we only got a week left, and we've been with the team for maybe eight weeks or so. And one kid is really just, uh, it's a great team. One kid in particular has just really grabbed my heart. And I remember one day after practice, I was talking to him, and um, I remember I grabbed his helmet. Because he's like, Coach Bibb, can I tell you something? I was like, absolutely. And uh, he shared what was on his heart. I'm going to tell you, he may be one in the margin. I said, absolutely, share he shared something from his heart. And I looked at him and I said, listen, you are better than that. You are greater than that. And his eyes started to get a little watery. He could do that after practice when all the team's gone, you know. You don't do that around your teammates. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I see something great inside of you. But you got to get rid of those friends in your life because they're tearing you down. And you're better than that. And your heavenly father loves you. 
I don't even know if this kid's a believer or not, but I just, you got to tell them. You got to embrace them. I'll tell you, I've never seen a kid work harder for me in the last couple weeks than after that conversation happened. Listen, you can change people's life if you just embrace them and love them well. And it is not always easy. It's not always easy. So here's the third thing you do in the midst of it. You celebrate their unique beauty. You celebrate their unique beauty. Listen, whether this is a child, whether it's a person you work with, whether it's this person that's driving you bonkers, whether it's a person that you absolutely love, you got to celebrate the way God created them. you got to look at them and say, hey, you've got passion, and I know exactly where God has given your passion. You're just using it in the wrong places right now. Let me take your unique beauty and the way God created you, because he created you on purpose, for a purpose, with purpose, and let's take that passion, let's move it here, where you're going to better suit God's kingdom we got to speak into people's lives. And that's exactly what P.T. Barnum did. And that's exactly what our Savior Jesus did. Because guess what? He embraced you. He embraced me. With all of our ugliness, he still says, come here. We're going to close with this look and, uh, the, towards the end of The Greatest Showman. Part of this was, as P.T. Barnum was creating a family of misfits, I love that representation of Jesus' 12, as he was creating that family, he allowed them to live into who they were, and they thrived. Only when we see ourselves and others will we be able to love them well. And the message that you and I as followers of Jesus, if you're here this morning, have to bring to people is realize you matter to God. With all your uniqueness, you matter to God. With all your hang-ups, you matter to God. And most importantly, you, you matter to us as well at Radiant Life. You matter to us. And I got to say, welcome to God's family. A bunch of misfits that Jesus never overlooked. So our message to you today is welcome home. It's the church. And when the world rejected, we will say, God loves you, you're forgiven, you're full of grace, you're full of mercy, God will pick you back up over and over. And P.T. Barnum thought he was the greatest showman. I want, to, I want to this morning correct him. Jesus is the greatest showman. He's the greatest showman. Only him. So let's say, welcome home. Welcome home. Let's go love people well. Let me pray for us this morning. God, you are so awesome. And just thank you for, first and foremost, just for loving us. With all of our failures, with all of our mistakes, when the culture wants to call us names and tear us down and throw bullets at us, and we know that we're loved, that you love us, we're forgiven, and we thank you so much for not rejecting us, but for sending your son Jesus to come on the cross for us. God, it's so difficult sometimes to love people well. I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would give us the power and strength to love people well. May we love them into your kingdom. And may they hear the words, loved, forgiven, cherished, son and daughter of God. And may we say, welcome home. In Jesus' name we pray.